0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. How long did it take you to prepare your tax returns this year? The average taxpayer in the Netherlands spends 15 minutes on their tax returns. The U.S. has the most complex tax code in the world. There are 73,000 pages of IRS regulations. Complexity is just one part of what Americans deal with. You may find this hard to believe, but the tax burdens on Americans is one of the lowest in the world among industrialized countries. Those are just a few of the findings in the new book, A Fine Mess, a Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. It's written by T.R. Reed. Mr. Reed, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Scott. Nice to talk to you. You got my book. (laughs) <laughs> I Thank
0: did. You. I did get your book. And if you yeah. have a, a question or a comment, uh, there's a lot here that I have to tell you that you're probably going to learn today or you weren't aware of. Give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smart at W.I.T.F. dot org. Uh, Mr. Reed, the last time we spoke, your book, The Healing of America, was W.I.T.F. Summer Read. Uh, that book examined health care around the world. Here we are four years later, not a whole lot has changed except we have a new president. Now, this book, A Fine Mess, has a similar format looking at taxes and how they're paid in other countries. But let's start with the U.S. Everyone listening today has experienced the complexity and the amount of time of filing federal income taxes. Give me some context. How did the U.S. get to this point?
1: We have, as you said, the most complicated uh, tax system on the planet, and it got there because when it started, our federal income tax in 1913, it was an incredibly popular tax. You know, the tax we love to hate today, everybody liked because originally it was only paid by the Rockefellers, the Morgans, and the Vanderbilts. It was designed specifically for the richest people to pay. And at the beginning, the highest rate was only 7%. Today it's 39.6%. And then what happened is we, went to, we had two world wars and they raised the rates and taxed more people to pay for those wars. And what had been an upper class tax became a mass tax. And when that happened, then the lobbyists came in and started adding exemptions and provisions and credits and giveaways for particular rich taxpayers. And that's why we have the mess we're stuck with today.
0: Now, that kind of goes to, you know, why it is so complex. And we're going to talk about fairness uh, a little bit later. But the, the big question, probably by the end of this program, someone will be asking is, can this be simplified?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question we could make it vastly simpler. As you said, in most other rich countries, uh filing taxes is a matter of a few minutes and it costs nothing americans spend 10 billion dollars a year for those tax preparation companies another two billion dollars on tax software that still takes a couple hours or more to do your return Um, in other countries it's a matter of minutes and costs nothing you can walk down the street in london paris lima there's no h and r block because other countries don't need that system in in japan get this and in britain you get a postcard from the irs that says we think you made this much we withheld this much we owe you a refund of this much we'll put it in your bank account on april 1st or you owe us this much we're going to take it out of your bank on april 1st Uh, if the card is right and almost always is you do nothing i mean people don't have to file a tax return it's only the united states that has put this massive burden on people So, you know, in the middle of April, when we ought to be out playing golf or having a picnic with the kids, we're slaving over these ridiculous IRS instructions. If we did what the other countries do, that is have the IRS fill out the forms for you because they know all the numbers, they could do that for almost all American families. You just have to check and make sure the numbers were right. If we did it, April 15th would be just another spring day.
0: <laughs> Boy, that's a nice thought. But, uh, you know, when yeah. I, when that introduction that I read uh, and, and that information comes from your book. 700, or excuse me, 73,000 pages of IRS regulations. And we don't know that for sure. That's an estimate, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. I asked the commissioner of internal revenue, John Coskin, if anybody in the IRS has read the whole tax code. And he laughed. I mean, the whole idea is preposterous. No, it's such a huge mess. Nobody can figure out what's in it. And one reason for that, Scott, is they hide the stuff that's in there. Uh, There is, you know, there's a provision in there that says, any auto manufacturer that was incorporated in Delaware on October 16, 1913, will not have to pay, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's General Motors, but they hide the benefits. So they put in, they just put in that description. Because they know they can't justify these things. This stuff, if people knew who it was for, they couldn't justify it. So our code is full of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these giveaways. And many other countries had the same problem and have gotten rid of them. Just get rid of them all. And then you can raise the same amount of money. with It's much simpler and with much lower rates.
0: You, you have been saying they. You're talking about Congress, right?
1: I'm talking about the U.S. Congress, and one of the things – I used to cover Congress for The Washington Post, and you know, there's some really decent members of Congress. There's no question there are good people there, but there's some grandstanders and hypocrites in that body. And uh, I always thought the worst – yeah, there are a few. (laughs) And I I always thought personally the worst. Every year they would haul in the IRS bureaucrats, and the members of Congress would berate them because the tax code is so complicated – Congress wrote it. I mean, this is called kill the messenger. You know, it's not the IRS's fault. It's our representatives who made it this hard. And the reason is when somebody comes in with a provision or a credit or an allowance that they would think would help them particularly, Congress puts it in. They make about 420 changes a year to the tax code. It gets worse every year.
0: You talked in the book uh, to uh, the taxpayer advocate, uh, which you know in many countries is an ombudsman, uh, right. but uh, you know she, you said that, uh, and it's really we, we've had one in the history of of that position, but uh, that she has a recommendation every year for what we could do differently. What is that recommendation? <laughs>
1: yeah, she's required to report to Congress every year on the twenty most common problems facing American taxpayers. And every year she lists the same biggest problem, and that is the complexity, of the tax code. And she says to me, I don't think they're listening. Every year they make it worse. Uh, This is a woman named Nina Olson. She's tough. She's feisty. She stands up for taxpayers. We had to give her a lot more power, and she could get something done. When I was writing my book, I reached the point where I needed an IRS instruction that was so complicated it's funny, you know, so I said to Nina Olson, the taxpayer advocate, look, I, I need to find a IRS instruction that's so complicated to make people laugh. And she said, but there's so many of those. <laughs> yeah. So here, you want to hear the one. Yeah, I'm go finally ahead. I, I, I wanted yeah, you yeah, to read this. Just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is from IRS Form. Go to Part 4 of Schedule 1 to figure Line 52 if the estate or trust has qualified dividends or has a gain on Lines 18A and 19 of Column 2 of Schedule D, Form 1041, as refigured for the AMT if necessary. You got that one, right, Scott.
0: <laughs> I, You know, from the third word, I was lost there.
1: <laughs> it's ridiculous. And it, the, the code is full of those things. They were all written for some lobbyist or some interest. And once they're in there, they're eternal. They never die. Yeah. Uh, and that's why and what we've found in other countries is the way to fix this is to do it big. you got to go big and get rid of all of them. And then everybody loses some deduction or some credit that they really like. But the total package, including much lower rates, is appealing enough so that you get the trade-off. And that's why I think this would work in the United States. If we started at ground zero and got rid of all that stuff, we'd have a much simpler return and lower rates raise the same amount of money. I think it could be done.
0: I talk about New Zealand because that's exactly what you're describing. New Zealand decided to start from scratch.
1: That's what happened, yes. I went, when I started this book, um, I went to the World Bank and the Inter- International Monetary Fund because they have experts who go around and talk to all countries, rich and poor, about what a good tax code is. And I said, what, "What? What? how do you do it? And they said, oh, the formula is simple. The formula is simple. You ready? It's BBLR. BBLR. That means broaden the base and you can lower the rates. So broaden the base means everything is taxable. Uh, your salary, that's taxable. If your employer pays your health insurance premium, well, that's like taxable income. In New Zealand, they say if your employer gives you free parking, well, gee, that would cost you 20 bucks a month. That's taxable income. And then they don't give you any deductions or credits. They say, hey, you want to give money to charity? That's great. We're all for it, but we're not giving you a tax break. You want to send your kid to private school? That's fine, but we're not giving you a tax break. And when you do that, then that makes a very broad income base, and you can raise the same amount of money with really low rates. Uh, An average family in New Zealand pays tax at half the rate of Americans. It takes them about 10 minutes to file the return, and that really works. Uh, And when you have lower rates, guess what? Compliance goes up. People are more inclined to pay if the amount of tax, the rate of tax, Is low it just doesn't feel like you're getting robbed by the government so much so all economists agree that if you broaden the base and lower the rates things get better and many countries have done it and one of the ones that did it Scott in 1986 was the United States
0: you point to 1986 during the Reagan administration and I'm old enough to remember this that uh, this was uh, one of President Reagan's priorities in his second term But, you know, you had Tip O'Neill, liberal Democrat, as the Speaker of the House. You're a president who was conservative Republican. But somehow they worked together and did bring about tax reform. What happened? And why was that such a high watermark?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we talk about a polarized politics. Well, then we had a conservative Republican president from California and a very liberal Speaker of the House from Massachusetts. And they agreed on this tax reform, and the reason was the same thing we see today, the code was a total mess. It was just full of these exemptions and credits and they kept raising the rates. And they decided to do BBLR, broaden the base, get rid of lots of deductions and credits, and lower the rates, and it worked. Uh, In 1980, the top marginal tax rate for income tax was 70%. After the 1986 reform, it was 28%. But they brought in the same amount of money because they got rid of so many deductions and credits, and it made the form much simpler. It was easier for taxpayers to pay. It was easier for the IRS to check. It's just better in every way. And then guess what happened, Scott? Over the next 20 years, the lobbyists came in and one by one stuck all those credits and allowances and loopholes back in there. And if you do that, then you have to raise the rate. So now we're at a rate of 39.6%.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is T.R. Reed, author of the new book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System. Mr. Reed is a former Washington Post correspondent and NPR contributor. I'm sure you've heard him many times. If you have a question or comment, give us a call 1 800 729 7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalk smart talk let me get that out on twitter we are at smart talk w-i-t-f again that's one eight hundred seven 729 let's take a phone call from tim in lancaster tim you're on the air
1: hi scott thanks for taking my call yes you're welcome um i just wanted to make the comment that and he's uh, your guest has already touched on this that the the tax laws are so complex but it's more to confuse the people that are having to do it which is the individual, and we have a government that's not really interested in reforming these laws because they serve the lobbyists and the companies. In the meantime, we have infrastructure, streets, pipes in Flint, Michigan, that are failing, and a Pentagon that hides $128 billion in bureaucratic waste. And so it's just a really big uphill battle that I don't think the government's really interested in trying to do to serve the people.
0: Thank you very much for your call. And uh, T.R., I'm going to have you uh, address that, but I just want to throw a couple words in there that touches on this, and that is tax morale. But address what what, uh, Tim had to say.
1: Uh, Well, Tim is right that uh, lobbyists have, you know, money talks in American politics, money talks in Congress, and the lobbyists have enormous clout. Uh, I talked about how in in the Netherlands it takes 15 minutes to pay your taxes, in Britain and Japan it takes about two minutes, Uh, and that's because in those countries, the IRS, the government agency, fills in the form for you. They know all the numbers, and all you have to do is look and check. If the numbers look wrong, you have to go in and complain, but if they're right, fine, you're done, and guess what? The IRS knows all the numbers for most American families. They know what you earned, they know how much mortgage you paid, uh, you know, they know all that stuff, and uh, they know your standardized deduction. They could fill in the form and save people all this time and billions of dollars. And uh, this is proposed in Congress every year. And guess what happens, Scott? H&R Block and the tax software companies come in and lobby against it. They call it government encroachment. If the government makes it easier to pay your taxes, well, that's a bad thing. So here's the drill. We do more work. They make more money. That's the system.
0: Patricia is in Middletown. Patricia, you're on the air.
1: Hi. Um, actually, it's Patricia. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, your guest is uh, touch on this. I wanted to know what are we going to do? With those thousands of people who, have, who are helping currently taxpayers fill out their forms, I mean, they're going to go on unemployment. Do you really think that we would be able to overcome their, um, uh, their opposition to this?
0: Thank you very much for your call, Tria.
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. There are people who are employed helping people with their taxes because the tax code is so, so complex it's not a good idea in any economy or any society to keep people in work that doesn't really serve a useful purpose and what happens is in vibrant innovative societies new jobs are created because of the money you've saved you know it used to be that harrisburg every city in america employed a squadron of people to sweep up behind the horses that were pulling carriages down the street well those jobs disappeared Nobody's making typewriters in America anymore. Those jobs disappeared. But a vibrant society finds a more useful thing to do with the money that was spent on something unnecessary, and that's what will happen. So she's right. Uh, People now whose job now is to help us deal with this impossible tax code will have to find another line of work. But overall, we'll all be better off.
0: And I, I want to go back to, uh, you know, some of the examples you've given, 15 minutes to file taxes in the Netherlands, seven minutes in Estonia. Now, a lot of people would listen to that and say, but there, there's a big but here. TR, it's Estonia. Estonia is, well, I don't know what the percentage is compared to the United States as far as population, you know, land mass, that kind of thing. It's hard to make a comparison between the United States and, uh, and Estonia.
1: I don't know. Uh, that's true. Estonia is about the size of uh, of uh, Connecticut um, in population. But, um, you know, Japan is 130 million people, and uh, it's a modern, vibrant society. It's the third richest country in the world, and their taxes take about one minute. If the IRS has gotten the numbers right, which it usually does, you're done in one minute. We could do this, too. I, I don't think— the size of the country is the distinction. The difference is the political will. If we had the political will to make it simple, the IRS, as I say, could do the return for almost all of us. I don't know if you've ever gotten this, Scott, but almost every year I get a letter from the IRS. It's called a CP2000 notice. It's not an audit. It's a correction. And here's what it says. It says on line 47, you entered $4,211, and it should have been 4716 and I get those almost every year. And, and I'm thinking, well, if the IRS already knew that, why did I have mm. to spend hours <laughs> trying to figure it out? And why did I put the right number on the wrong line? or, something? You know, they could do this for us. And that's what happens in most countries.
0: Mm. Let's talk about tax burden. This may surprise some people here in the United States. But the U.S. has the third lowest tax burden of the 35 richest countries in the world. And, you know, again, I know that many people out there listening says, well, that just can't be right because I pay so much in taxes. What about that?
1: Yeah. Americans always say in polls, they always say they're overtaxed. People in every country say they're overtaxed. One of the people who definitely believes this is our president, Donald Trump. He said a hundred times during the campaign, the U.S. is the highest taxed country in the world. Yeah. Well, that turns out to be an alternative fact. Uh, there's a standard measure for total tax burden, and here's what you do. You take all the federal, state, and local taxes in the whole country, add up the total, and take what percentage that is of GDP, of overall wealth in the country. And by that standard measure, as you say, the America, America rates 32nd out of the 35 richest countries. Let's see, Chile, Mexico, and South Korea have a slightly lower tax burden than we do. Ours is about 26% of GDP. We pay in total taxes at all levels. In Western Europe, Sweden is 48%, Denmark 49%, France 47%. So relative to other countries, we're undertaxed, and uh, uh, on the other, so we pay less for government, but we do a lot of stuff privately that's done by government in other countries. You know, Americans give far more to charity. In any other country, because in other countries, they expect government to do the kind of things we do privately, like big universities and stuff. So we're very good at giving away money to charity because we'd rather do things privately. So we get less government, but we pay less for it. I I don't know if that makes anybody's feel a little better when they have to write the check to the IRS, but you're paying less than you would in Britain or Germany or
0: Sweden. You know, one of the things that uh, when we talk about major tax reform, uh, you went back to 86, you talked about, uh, you know, some of the deductions that were taken away uh, during the last tax reform. I remember at the time that, uh, believe it or not, for many people, I don't know if they remember this or not, that you were able to write off the interest on your credit cards or car loans, loans, that you have that's right all those loans that you had at the time there were many people saying oh there's no way there's no way how am i going to be able to afford this well today the the two biggest deductions that most people look at the mortgage on their homes and also the deduction they get for giving to charity now let's start with charity Uh, Most people would say, and especially the charities, the nonprofits out there would say, "Uh, if you take that away, we're going to go out of business. There are, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of charities in this country that will just not be able to operate any longer because of that uh, getting rid of the deduction. Is that the case?
1: Uh, No, they would not lose money. Uh, And we know this because many countries around the world have gotten rid of the charitable deduction. And there's a very standard pattern when this happens. When you take rid of the get rid of the tax deduction for contributions for about one or maybe two years, uh, contributions flatten off. They don't go up anymore. And then up, starting about the third year, they go up again along with the rate of income increase. Uh, people give money, Scott, because they want to help others. They don't do it for the tax deduction. And as a matter of fact two-thirds of the uh, families in America use the standardized deduction, uh, the standard deduction, so that they don't even get any deduction for their contributions, because you have to itemize to get that deduction. So uh, if you put five bucks a week in the plate in church, if you put $10 in the helmet at your football team's dinner, you don't get a deduction for that. So Um, What we've found is all around the world, uh, you can take away that deduction, and it doesn't hurt charities. You know, people give to charity because they want to help others. Corporations give because they want to help their community and because they want the PR. You know, if you said to some company in Harrisburg, some company is going to give money for the new library. If you said, look, you can either have the tax deduction or we'll put your name on the library, they'd take the name. They do it for that reason. So, no, this notion that people only give money away so they can get a tax deduction for it has just been proven wrong all around the world.
0: And something else to mention there, a little bit of trivia. I don't know if you call this trivia or not, but that Americans are the most charitable, that we give more than any other country in the world.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, in France, the average French, they they give about one-tenth of one percent of GDP to charity. In Norway, which is a very generous country, they give 1% of GDP. The U.S. is far more generous. 2.6% of GDP we give to private charities. And I said, that's partly because we just don't like government as much as other countries do. So we do a lot of stuff through charity that other countries do through government, like running big universities or funding hospitals. Um, On the other hand... You know, some of the stuff that we would consider, you know, big government nanny state welfare, we actually do through the tax code. You know, Scott, we lived in London, and when I lived in London, I we still had two kids under the age of 18. And every month, the government sent me a check, about 100 bucks per kid. That they call it child benefit. And I'm thinking, wow, boy, this is the European welfare state. They pay it just to have kids. We'd never do that in America. And guess what? Then I came home and I got a $4,050 deduction for each of my kids On when I pay taxes, it turns out to be about the same value as the welfare, the so-called welfare I got in Europe. We do the same thing. We just do it through the tax code.
0: But, you know, that is one of you just uh, touched on uh, one of the real issues that we do have here in the U.S., and, and that is child care and, you know, having families. We know there are many poor families across this country and, you know, even middle class families that have a hard time paying for child care. And they use they use that t- the tax deduction to help them afford that. What do you say to those people?
1: Here's what I say. If you get rid of all all the deductions, including the popular ones, uh, then you can lower the rates. With lower rates, everybody's take-home pay goes up. So, yeah, you end up paying more. You you pay the same amount for child care. You don't get a tax credit, but you have higher take-home pay to pay the child care. So it, it works out better. It's, it, it, it's simpler to give people a lower tax rate. They have higher take-home pay and let them work out their economic issues themselves without having to fill out three different IRS forms.
0: Probably the most popular tax deduction, though, is writing off the interest uh, that you pay on your home mortgage. Uh, understand that this is actually something that the Trump administration has been talking about eliminating that tax deduction. And already, uh, I've heard many people saying, "Uh-uh, can't do that." There's just no way you can do that. That is something that that's our biggest deduction, and I'll pay much more in taxes if that happens. But I, I think what you're going to tell me is it goes back to what you just said about childcare—that you lower rates, you don't miss
1: that deduction yeah let's talk about that one so the uh, home mortgage interest deduction that's very popular people really like it it costs the government 73 billion dollars a year now that's money we could use to treat wounded veterans or to reduce the deficit or you know build a border wall if you wanted to do that Um, and instead we give it as a subsidy to homeowners and, as I said, only one-third of people, of families, take the itemized deduction. If you take the standard deduction, then it doesn't make any difference what you paid in the mortgage. You don't get any more or less for it. Um, and the argument for this deduction, it costs $73 billion, is, well, it enhances home ownership, and that's good for communities, which is true. Uh, but guess what? You don't need it to enhance home ownership, because as I say in my book, many countries in the last 20 years have gotten rid of the home ownership deduction, and home ownership rates are higher in those countries than they are in the United States. You don't need this to encourage home ownership. What you do need to do is for people like me and probably you who bought a house when there was a mortgage interest deduction, we paid more for it. You know the. The couple goes out with the real estate agent on the weekend and says, God, I love this house, but we couldn't afford the payment. And the realtor says, yeah, but you're going to get a big tax break. It's going to work out fine. And so you end up paying more for the house. For those people, we have to come up with some transition system to bail them out because they'd get less for their house when they sell it. And there are ways to do that. Other countries have figured this out. But it costs a lot of money. Most people don't get it, and it doesn't enhance home ownership. Uh, And the reason I say we had to get rid of it is because I think we had to get rid of all these credits and deductions and loopholes. So in my book, I really focused in on the two popular ones, the charitable and the mortgage interest. And as I say, many countries have gotten rid of them with very little impact.
0: But another one that, uh, I don't know, you kind of tell the story of hybrid cars and the deductions that Americans get on hybrid cars. And there's some shocking information when you tell that story. Uh, (laughs) tell, Tell the story of hybrid cars.
1: Yeah, I have a scene in my book where the president, it's a fantasy, right? The president goes down to Congress and says, hey, Congress, here's a great new idea. We're going to give – I'm going to have the Treasury send a check for $7,500 to anybody who buys a $138,000 BMW hybrid car, and that will be a boon to rich car buyers, to German car makers, and it will add $740 million to the deficit every year would we ever pass this would we give that kind of money to some guy who buys a german car we do it's in the tax code we don't call it a subsidy it's called a tax break it's a tax credit for buying hybrid cars and most of it about 98 percent of it goes to the richest four percent of americans um and you can buy a japanese car a korean car a german car and you still get the break uh, we would never do this, but we did it through the tax code. And the argument is, well, that's good because it reduces oil consumption, and, and it, that's good for us. But if that's the, the case, then why do we give a tax credit for buying a recreational vehicle? Those are those are huge tax guzzlers. So the whole code doesn't make sense. And most of these provisions really don't achieve what they were designed to achieve. They're just a break for people who have the lobbying clout to get them into the tax code.
0: Again, going back to the explanation, though, that almost everyone who... Nowadays, I say most people, when they think about uh, you know gas mileage and the price of gas and wanting to get away from fossil fuels, I've heard so many people say, "Oh, you know what? I'd like to get a hybrid." Whether I can afford it or not, that's a different a different thing. There are hybrids that uh, you know in the thirty thousand dollar range, maybe even a little cheaper. But right, it, it yeah. sounds like a tax break that makes sense to Americans.
1: Yeah, I, to me it doesn't make sense. For one thing, if you buy the $35,000 hybrid, you do get a tax credit, but it's much lower. The biggest tax credit goes to the people who buy that $138,000 German car uh, or a Tesla 105. That gets you 7500 bucks too. Uh, so it, most of it goes to the richest people who really don't need it. Do you think some guy is not going to buy a Tesla and buy a used Ford pickup instead <laughs> because you won't get the tax credit. I mean, it just it doesn't really serve its purpose. And because of it, the the car makers can charge more for the car and then the dealer says to you, yeah, it's okay because you're going to get a tax credit for all this money. Uh, it's, it's like all the rest. It makes things much more complicated. It forces us to raise the tax rate to bring in the same amount of income and it doesn't really achieve its purpose. Uh, my guess is, People would buy hybrids anyway without a tax credit, and particularly if gasoline goes back to $4 a gallon. People are going to buy hybrids, tax credit or no.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about taxes with T.R. Reed, the author of the new book, A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, fairer and more efficient tax system. If you have questions or comments, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. On Facebook, you can leave a question or comment, WITF's Facebook page, or on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Let's get into some of the other taxes that are utilized around the world, and actually some in this country. Blaine writes, as a part-time seasonal tax preparer, many of us would be happy to give up our jobs if we go to if we could go to a vastly simplified code. I personally would like to see a Go to a flat income tax at the same rate for individuals and corporations. Courts have said they are people. No exemptions, no deductions, and require a super majority to make any changes. So what he's talking about is a flat tax. We hear every time there's an election cycle, we hear some politician, some candidate talk about going to a flat tax and saying it's the fairest way of all. Everyone would pay the same rate. What about that?
1: Yeah, as you said, last year in 2016, six of the Republican candidates for president argued for a flat rate tax, say 18 19%. Everybody pays the same rate. What could be fairer? No, it turns out not to be fair, and unfortunately, it doesn't work. You know, the thesis of my book, Scott, is that any idea anybody left or right has had to fix our tax code, some country has tried it, and that flat rate tax... A dozen countries tried it out. These were countries in Eastern Europe in the 1990s, early 2000s, when they got out of the Soviet Union and were becoming capitalist countries. And they needed something to attract investors. And these are countries where nobody had any money. Everybody was about equally poor. They had no investment capital, and so they put in these flat rate tax codes. And sure enough, rich people from Germany and from Scandinavia came to those countries and started businesses. It worked. Uh, their economies did well for seven or eight years. And then what happened is when the world economy turned sour in 2008 and nine, it just turns out that you can't bring in enough money at a rate of about 18 the, percent. The problem is you can't set that single rate high enough to bring in the revenue you need, but still low enough for an average working family to be able to pay it. Uh, And so most of the countries that tried the flat tax gave up on it. Um, The ones that have kept it have to make up for the revenue in other ways. Hungary has a 15% flat rate income tax. Everybody pays it. But to bring in the revenue they need, they have the world's highest sales tax, 27% on anything you buy. Um, Estonia has a flat rate income tax. And their Social Security tax is 35%. That's more than double what Americans have to pay. So uh, it just, it turns out, what I said in my book is, you want a flat rate tax, it works fine. If you're a Soviet republic where everybody has the same income and you need to bring in investment capital from overseas, it'll work for seven or eight years. It would not work in the United States, unfortunately.
0: All right. So let's go to a tax that you seem to really like. The value-added tax, the VAT, as uh, it's known most often in the book and amongst those who know their their, their, their tax uh, policy. Tell me about uh, the value-added tax and why you think it's a good idea.
1: This is a good tax. Uh, this is a tax that was invented in France in the 1950s. It's like a sales tax, like the sales tax you pay at the bookstore or the <coughs> bicycle store, uh, but it's a tax that applies at every level of commerce. So the, the maker, the, the original miner, the, the guy who buys the, the raw material pays a tax to his supplier, and then the manufacturer pays a tax to the raw material supplier. The wholesaler pays a tax to the manufacturer. The distributor pays a tax. The retailer pays a tax, and then you pay a tax. So it's a sales tax at every level. And each time somebody pays the tax, they report that to the government. So here's what happens. It turns out to be a very easy tax for government to collect and a very hard tax to duck. You can't get away without paying that tax. And therefore, it brings in a lot of money, and companies can use it to lower the burden of the income tax on people and corporations. So economists like it because it taxes it doesn't tax labor it doesn't tax savings or investment it taxes consumption governments like it because it's a very hard tax to duck and people like it because the money is then used to lower their income tax so 176 countries around the world have have added a vat or sometimes it's called a goods and services tax the same thing and um People keep proposing it in the United States. Uh, this Professor Eric Zold at UCLA Law School, he's designed tax codes for about 40 countries. And he said to me, you know, to design a tax code without a value-added tax, it would be malpractice. Nobody would do that. And then he says to me, you know, this is such a good idea. Even the U.S. Congress will figure it out. He says, mark my words, within five years, the U.S. will have a VAT. And then he says... Of course, I've been saying that for 20 years.
0: (laughs) And, of course, there are arguments against the VAT tax uh, as well. One that you point out in the book is that it's an indivisible tax, that people don't see it. And taxes can be raised without a lot of people knowing about it.
1: Yeah, this is a very common complaint about the VAT. It's called the money machine because um, – if you do it that way, if you make it can be an invisible tax, then government can raise it. The price of the book you buy goes up, but people blame the bookstore, they blame the publisher, they don't blame the government for raising the tax. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. In Canada, they have a VAT, and it works just like as in America. You pay twenty-five bucks for the shirt, and then they say, by the way, you you owe another dollar eighty-two for the tax. You could do it that way. It doesn't have to be invisible. Mm.
0: So let's move on to the corporate taxes. The corporate tax rate here in the United States, about 35%. Donald Trump is proposing reducing it to 15%. Now, there are a lot of reactions to that. I mean, there were people right away who said, well, that doesn't surprise us with with Donald Trump. Helping out corporations, but not helping out, uh, helping uh, individual Americans who are struggling. Uh, But that 35%, corporate rate is one of the highest rates in the world. But hardly anyone pays that rate. And many of the biggest companies in America have paid zero in taxes. There are ways around it. How do they do it?
1: Yeah, I have a whole chapter in my book about the bizarre, the ridiculous lengths they go to to move their profits to Bermuda or Ireland or Switzerland. Um, It's kind of stunning. But, you know, it's our fault. I mean, it, it, Trump is right on this. That corporate income tax is is too high. It's it's almost the highest in the world. France's is, is higher. Of course, France is the world champion at gouging rich people. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it does give a competitive disadvantage to American companies. And you're right, Scott. Nobody, if, if any company ever paid 35% in tax, they'd fire their chief financial officer the next morning. Nobody pays the full rate, but even so, the effective rate, that is the amount companies actually pay, is higher than in most other countries, and that's a competitive disadvantage for American companies. And when you set the rate that high, then the company has an incentive to pay lawyers and accountants and consultants to come up with ways to avoid the tax, and the the stuff they do is, is uh, it's amazing. It takes me pages in my book to try to explain how they do it. Uh, Caterpillar Corporation, you know, they're a very iconic American company. They, they make those big yellow earth movers and road graders. Yeah, and they stuff. had
0: a plant here in central Pennsylvania for the longest time.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're a good company. They make, they design and make their products in America. But um, they paid PricewaterhouseCoopers, the consultant, $55 million to come up with a plan to move a lot of their profits to Geneva, Switzerland, where they were taxed at 2% or 6%. And uh, over the next 10 years, they saved $8 billion in taxes. That's $8 billion that would have come to run affairs in the United States. They didn't pay. It only cost them $55 million. And there, you can sort of see why, because the rate is so high. So I think Trump is right. We ought to get that rate down, whether 15% is the right number. We haven't yet seen the losses that are going to accrue from the Trump plan. His plan didn't have any costs associated with it. But uh, we ought to get that number down. I think that's correct. What what you want to do is corporations, uh, if corporations are going to pay tax, I mean, after all, they use the fire department, they use the roads, they use the police, they use government services. Um, uh, We ought to make it uh, fairly simple and at a rate that's competitive with other countries. And then if the rate is low, then they don't have any economic need to go to a consultant or a lawyer and design some bizarre plan for moving their profits overseas.
0: Let's talk about a few other taxes. But before, before we do, something that uh, you mentioned with France, France, Norway, and Switzerland – have what are called wealth taxes. Uh, You said that the French are the world champions for soaking the rich, but we hear that all the time, that the rich need to pay more. France, Switzerland, and Norway, they decided to do something. What's a wealth tax?
1: Well, you know what the property taxes you pay? The assessor says, we think your house is worth $500,000, and so you have to pay, I don't know what it would be in Harrisburg, $3,000 or $4,000 in property tax. This is the same idea, but in France, the assessor assesses everything you own, your house, your cars, your bank account, your investments, your Persian rugs, the art on your walls. And if the total is more than about a million and a half dollars, if that's your total wealth is greater than that, then they tax it at about 1%. They just take it 1%. And, again, they're going to tax it again next year. So it's like a property tax, but it applies to all the wealth you have. About six – India has one, too. About six countries have that. Um, and generally it applies only to the top 2 or 3% of richest people.
0: I don't know. Don't sound, It doesn't sound like it would be very popular amongst uh, the richest people. <laughs> I don't think people. we
1: could get away with that. In yeah, the United I don't States. know. That, that sounds a little thing, difficult. The one thing, it's intrusive. I mean, you know – For your property tax, the appraiser, he can just look at the recent sales in your neighborhood to figure out the value. For the wealth tax, he's got to come and check out your car. You know, he's got to look at the paintings on your wall. So it's so intrusive. We would never do it, I don't think.
0: Mm. Uh, Let's talk about uh, some other taxes here. A carbon tax. We hear a lot about this. Cap and trade. We've heard a lot about that uh, in recent years. What about a carbon tax?
1: Yeah, well, the argument for the carbon tax is it's a good deal because it raises revenue and it uh, reduces carbon emissions and that that uh, reduces uh, climate change. So it's a good thing. Right. Uh, And uh, Australia is a very green country. I mean, it's very outdoorsy, athletic country, very green, and they burn a lot of coal in Australia. So Australia put in a carbon tax and uh, it was very popular when the government put it in. Everybody liked it. It lasted two years. And then the government lost the next election. The opposition party ran on a campaign of ax the tax and won. And the reason is when they put in the carbon emissions tax, everybody's electric bill went up because all the power companies there burn coal. And they, so everybody's electric bill went up to pay the tax. And the electric companies very thoughtfully put on every bill, your bill went up because of that stupid tax. And people hated it, so it didn't last. So the carbon tax sounds really good, and some places, British Columbia in Canada has one. Uh, the European Union has a form of a carbon tax. But it, it turns out to be hard to work in effect because it raises prices. of something that everybody needs. In Canada, the opposition, it was an electricity tax, and the uh, opposition called it a big new tax on everything. Well, that's a good way to defeat a tax.
0: (laughs) I I guess it would surprise people, though, when you say that Australia is a green country, but yet they rely so much on coal. They are a big uh, coal producer. Uh, Let's uh, talk about some other taxes here. Uh, Henry George, a single tax. What is that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Henry George was uh, one of the most famous men. Henry George and Thomas Edison were the two most famous men in the United States in the end of the 19th century. And he proposed a tax on property, on undeveloped property. If you own any piece of land, we're gonna tax it at a very high rate. And he felt that this was fair because at that time, most of the people who owned land were rich. So he saw this as a tax on the rich. And he argued this could be the single tax. All you needed was to tax property high enough and you wouldn't need any other tax and you know maybe in the 1880s when government was pretty small that might have worked uh it certainly wouldn't work today but he had this huge national following and and there was a there was a national philosophy called georgism had followers all over the world and one thing they did is they denounced the landlord class and the landowning class they were the bad guys the 1% And one of the things they did to promote Georgism was they invented a board game about greedy landlords. It's called Monopoly. It's still the best-selling game in America.
0: <laughs> you know, when you compare it to a property tax, uh, the thousands of Pennsylvanians out there listening just said, oh, no, 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 no. Land is not a good barometer for how to tax people, and uh, it's a regressive tax, and, you know, people who no longer have incomes, you know, so I don't know whether they would go with Henry George's uh, ideas uh, in, in 2017 America or not. Uh, we've got a couple more other emails here. Uh, Heidi in York says most tax deductions simply benefit the wealthy, never the poor. Uh, Pam in Harrisburg says correction is not a hybrid for which you get a tax credit. Credit it is electric. Is that the case?
1: No, both it plug-in hybrid or uh, fully electric car, oh. you get the deduction for.
0: Lyndon Hershey says some people don't get any deductions because they have uh, don't have children, but they still pay, don't get maternity leave or other benefits related to family. Singles keep the system going. It get no benefits from the tax system. So we have some people who, uh, you know, have a few of their own individual... Uh, observations about the tax system. Here's one from Don in Newville, a pretty important question. So how does the American public go about driving the lobbyist out of the politics of taxation and take productive steps toward changing the current tax code?
1: Yeah, that's that's the key question. The beauty of it is everybody seems to agree that our tax code is a monster. It's a mess. Nobody would defend it it's been 31 years now since the last time we did a thorough reform the time has come and i think everybody sees that so and the way to do it and many members of congress many of the leaders in our tax writing committees, see this is to get rid of all those deductions and uh therefore reduce the rates and make the things simpler so the thing to do is call your congressman they take calls it might be some staffer but he writes down and tells the senator, hey, here's the call we got today on this topic, or send an email or send a letter or go to the town hall. Or when you're in Washington, take 20 minutes and go up and see your representative and say, hey, this really matters to me. Why don't we get this fixed? When they hear that from people, um, they, they tend to act. And the beauty of, of a total reform of starting over, as we did in 86, is it serves both sides so uh democrats uh don't like all the loopholes and giveaways for uh rich people republicans want lower rates and if you do the bblr the broaden the base lower the rates thing uh then you get both you get rid of all those loopholes and as a result you can lower the rates both sides get what they want that that's why i think it's doable we've done it three times in American history, in 1922, 1954, and 1986. The pattern there is every one of those 32 years, after 32 years, our tax code becomes such a mess, everybody realizes you have to fix it. Well, the 32 years is up, Scott, in 2018, so that's the argument of my book. If we look around the world, we can figure out what we ought to do and what we ought not to do to write a new internal revenue code of twenty eighteen.
0: The book is A Fine Mess by TR. Reed. Mr. Reed, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Great. I loved it when you made my book A Summer Read. I'm really grateful to WITF. Thanks, guys. Thank